Section 31 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Michael, Sussex, Wisconsin, USA. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill, Section 31. Education, the True Christian Ideal. Objections. Let the priests attend to religion. The schoolmaster has nothing to do with it. The teaching of religion is the work of the church and the Sunday school. The school hours are short enough for the acquiring of the secular knowledge needed to fit the pupils to fill their respective places in life. The answer. Such is not the Catholic ideal, nor is it the true ideal of any Christian denomination, whatever may be its actual practice. The church and the Sunday school can do a great deal in the matter of religious teaching. But what if their influence be counteracted by that of the weekday school? The weekday school is a necessary adjunct of church and Sunday school. The sovereign importance of religion and the difficulties attending religious training in our age make it imperative that religion should permeate the whole life of the child and that whilst his mental powers are unfolding, they should be constantly kept under the directive influence of religious motive. It would be a narrow and baneful conception of school training that would confine its scope to the training of the intellect. The formation of character is no less, in fact it is much more, a part of its province. But character supposes a grasp of right motives and a holding to right standards of action. Now, there is no rectitude of motive and conduct, which is not ultimately rooted in religion. For religion alone, be it natural or supernatural, can teach the truths which are the basis of all right conduct. Eliminate religion with its eternal truths relating to the divine lawgiver and his unchangeable laws, and morality becomes a matter of convention or of expediency. It stands upon a false, shifting basis and will be powerless against the inroads of the worse-than-pagan naturalism that now menaces society. A formation of character based on religious training must therefore go hand-in-hand hand with the training of the intellect. If school life were simply negative in its effect on character, the case in favor of religion as an ingredient of education might lose something of its strength but merely negative the moral influence of school life never can be. Contact with so many minds and with so many ideas must exert a positive influence on a boy's character. The books read, the example of teachers and fellow pupils, the practical maxims embodied in the conduct of so many, the teaching methods with their incentives and sanctions, the conversations held in hours of relaxation, the friendships formed. None of these things can be without their influence on a boy's character. And as all these phases of school life have important moral bearings, it is necessary that religion be present as a faithful guide and helpmate on the thorny road of school life. Religious training must then be combined with secular instruction. But how combined? The ideal way of combining them is that which obtains the Catholic parochial schools of the United States. In these schools, 
Religion is not merely taught in the abstract or in theory, but is at the same time in many practical ways inculcated. In the first place, there is frequent catechetical instruction in which the pupil is made familiar with an order of ideas far transcending all others, both in interest and in importance, and in which the specific duties of life are impressed indelibly on the conscience. At the same time, the actual practice of religion is in many ways fostered. The old Catholic maxim, ora et labora, work and pray, is here held in honor. Successive periods of schoolwork during the day are begun and ended by prayer. Thus habituated to prayer, the pupil is not likely ever to regard prayer as an intruder come to disturb his peace. Reminders of the unseen world of grace and holiness meet his gaze at every turn in the pictures and statues that adorn the walls of the schoolroom. Frequent acknowledgment of faults in the tribunal of peace, followed by the divinely efficacious absolution of God's minister, renovates his soul and prevents him from becoming a prey to evil habits. The bread of angels, often received at the Eucharistic table, matures and develops in him the life of the Spirit. In the annual retreat, the great truths of religion penetrate his soul to the very depths. Not unfrequently, the retreat marks a great moral turning point in a boy's career. Practical religion includes a great deal more than what are called pious practices. Good moral conduct, or the observance of God's law, is the best fruit borne by religion. And this the Catholic parochial school affords many an opportunity of promoting. In schools of this type, an appeal can be made to religious motives, whereas in schools of the neutral sort, such appeals would be considered out of place. God, church, sacraments are not considered alien ideas in a Catholic school. To appeal to a boy as a Christian and to remind him of his duties as a Christian is not outside a Catholic teacher's province. For a teacher to cooperate with a boy's parents in removing evil from his path and stimulating his good habits, to proffer a timely word of advice, to encourage acts of self-denial, to warn certain of his pupils of the pitfalls which pride or sensuality may be preparing for them on the road of life, these and similar services to his pupils, the Catholic teacher regards as within the compass of his essential duties. A zealous teacher in almost any school will find opportunities of enforcing a moral precept in the course of daily resuscitations and readings. But in the Catholic parochial school, he can do so without any restriction, and his illustrations may be drawn not only from profane history, but also from Holy Writ and the lives of the saints. We call this the ideal system because it brings the whole school life of the child into relation with religion. It is thus the natural complement of the home life in a typical Catholic household, where religion is paramount and all-pervading, and where human conduct is continually viewed in the light of God's presence and God's law. The basis of the system is the principle that with the growth of thews and sinews, religion should grow in the heart, and that from the dawn of reason, the sense of moral obligation should begin to establish itself 
in the child's life. Thus, religion and a sense of duty become a second nature in the child. The system has, of course, been assailed. It has been asserted that such a system of training does not do justice to the secular education of the pupil, that the non-religious studies continually suffer from the intrusion of religion. The objection is not based on a knowledge of facts, but on some arbitrary notion of the actual working of the system. 30 or 40 years ago, it must be confessed, it was not so easy to overthrow the objection as it is today. At that period, the majority of our parochial schools, not by any means all of them, found it difficult to compete with the state schools in the teaching of the secular branches, not because the pupils were overdosed with religion, but by reason of inferior equipment and organization. But things have greatly changed since then. The splendid organization and the superior training of teachers introduced in the past generation have produced results that have made the parochial schools the equals, in many cases the superiors, of those under state control. Now this ideal system is placed within the reach of a great majority of Catholics, and its fruits are manifest. Many Catholics, we are sorry to have to confess, do not avail themselves of it. Some parents, it is true, have reasons for preferring Catholic schools not belonging to the parish school system, but giving a no less efficient Catholic training. With these we have no quarrel. Our affair is rather with those parents who are indifferent or careless in the matter of choosing a school for their children, or who affect to believe that one school is as good as another in its influence on moral behavior. We have in mind also a class of parents who fix their gaze solely on the supposed social or intellectual advantages possessed by non-Catholic schools. How often such estimates and the expectations built on them prove disappointing. Or who are ready to seize pretexts for sending their children to the public schools because Catholic schools are looked down upon by their neighbors and acquaintances. It is a rare thing for a child not to suffer in consequence of such preference for the public schools on the part of his parents. That his parents do not perceive that he has been harmed by his non-Catholic education is a sad comment on their own religious frame of mind, and in many cases on the low moral and religious standard prevailing in their households. The boy's ignorance of his religion and his general unfamiliarity with things Catholic should alone be enough to condemn his being sent to a school in which neither church nor religion can ever be mentioned. In matters of vital importance, we are confident that in at least the majority of cases, Catholic parents will not have to wait long to perceive the evil effects of their children's training in the public schools. Each boy tends to become like his environment. And who does not know what a boy's environment is in the public schools? In point of morality, the children of the public schools reflect the condition of the population from which they have sprung. Now, we are not going to draw a line between good and bad in the population of these United States and place the Catholics on one side and the non-Catholics on the other. Both bad and good are found among our Catholic people. And yet, 
there is a vast difference in the moral order between Catholics and their neighbors. Catholics are of one mind in matters of belief and practice. The same cannot be said of Protestants, even within the limits of any single sect. There is no difference of opinion among Catholics regarding matrimony and the family. They are of one mind on the subject of education, though the practice of a certain number does not square with their principles. Catholics have clear conceptions of duty, which stand out in bold contrast with the shifting notions of non-Catholics. Among Catholics, the supernatural is more habitually and more intensely realized. Their consciences are more frequently and more effectually brought to the touchstone of divine law and ecclesiastical ordinance, and the necessity of repentance for sin is more intimately brought home to them. The distinctive Catholic doctrine of the soul's dependence on grace, especially on grace as conveyed through the sacraments, is one of the great vitalizing beliefs of the Catholic Church. Over against the Catholic body, we find a vast and motley multitude from which Christian influences are fast disappearing. In the first place, an immensely large part of the population of the United States is composed of indifferentists, atheists, and agnostics. Some 50 or 55 million persons have no connection with any religious denomination. Among those who profess any form of religion, it is only too well known what small influence is exercised by non-Catholic churches on everyday practical life. Add to this that we are a commercial and industrial people, and a people of that description, in which religion is fast waning, must gradually lose its hold on the principles of common honesty. The actual fact is evidenced by many a news item in our morning journals. A population that is rapidly drifting away from religion and is seized by the get-rich-quick fever will fill our public schools with children who, of course, are not yet as bad as their sires, but who are on the surest road to becoming so. Children, certainly, who are not accustomed to hearing the maxims of Christian morality inculcated. It is not surprising, then, that the minds of so many children are imbued with a worldly, selfish, unreligious, and materialistic spirit. What is still worse, owing to the absence of religious influence in the life of the average child of the period, the sensual tendencies meet with little or no check, and the germs of vice are sown and nurtured in the soul before the dawn of reason. A Catholic child can be reclaimed from habits of impurity by the discipline of the confessional. Outside the Catholic Church, there is no influence that can penetrate to the inner recesses of the soul and heal the disorder at its source. The atmosphere of Catholicism is rife with influences tending to foster a love of purity. The familiar image of Mary Immaculate, the sight of so many who have consecrated their virginity by the vows of religion, the example of truly Christian mothers whose lives bear the impress of the grace received in the sacrament of matrimony, the modesty and reserve which is one of the fairest fruits of Catholic teaching. These and many other feature of Catholic life tend to preserve the ideal of Christian purity in young hearts.
And even when the young do not, for a time, respond to the inspiration of their surroundings, the influence of that ideal is not wholly destroyed. What a contrast in all this to the average results of non-Catholic training, and what a difference between the moral atmosphere of a Catholic school and that of the schools conducted by the state. No one who has any grasp of the principles we have been setting forth or who realizes the state of things we have been describing can be surprised at the uncompromising attitude of our bishops toward schools and school systems from which religion is excluded. They do not deny the right of the state to open its own schools, but state schools of the type prevailing in the United States, whatever be their merits in other respects, are not regarded by them as suitable places for the rearing of Catholic children. And Catholics should note well that the bishops not only look with disfavor upon such schools, but positively forbid parents to send their children to them. There may be reasons in particular cases for allowing Catholic children, but the value of those reasons is to be estimated not by parents alone, but also by their spiritual superiors. But even apart from the obedience to the bishops, the choice of schools for children is one in which the consciences of parents are intimately concerned. In an age when the rearing of children is beset with so many difficulties, the courting of new difficulties is hardly less than sinful, especially when the most vital interests of the child are endangered. Parents cannot afford to take any chances with the faith and morals of their children in an age when temptation is so rife, when the world is so attractive, and when the broad road leading to perdition is crowded with the world's votaries. They should do for their children now what they will wish to have done for them in the evening of life, when the complete results of their children's training will be clearly manifest. What we have said of the lower grades of education is applicable to the higher education sought in the colleges. The peril to faith and morals is even greater in non-Catholic colleges than in the elementary public schools, especially when the students are entirely removed during nine or ten months of the year from the saving influences of church and home. If the history of Catholic students in non-Catholic colleges in America were fully and truthfully written, it would exhibit many a defection from the faith. And even where it did not record such sad disasters, it would reveal many a seared conscience and many a poisoned mind. The least that may be said against the influence of such college training is that the average young Catholic educated in non-Catholic colleges is in some respects less of a Catholic at the end of his course than when he first crossed the threshold of what he calls his alma mater. We are chiefly interested in the welfare of our Catholic children, but we cannot be indifferent to the lot of those millions of children outside the church who in the next few generations are doomed never to hear of God or religion, either in school or at church or at home. These children will one day constitute the great majority of the adult population of the American Commonwealth. Will the results of this modern paganism bring about a reaction in favor of religion? We are not prophets. 
we can only raise our feeble voice in warning against the approach of an era in which the great mass of the people of our country will have no reason or motive derived from their education for preserving even the externals of morality. And when no restraint can be put upon public vice, save by brute force, so long as brute force can be enlisted on the side of public virtue. Even in the interests of our Catholic children, we cannot be indifferent to the moral condition of those with whom they must perforce live. It is doubtless not easy to devise a practicable scheme by which religion, or at least what are sometimes called the common principles of morality, could be taught in or in connection with our public schools. Either the religion or the morality taught would have to be of one specific type, or all types would have to be represented. The one plan would not be acceptable for intrinsic reasons. The other would not be feasible. Men are not agreed nowadays on common principles of morality. Catholics hold that divorce is in all cases immoral. Most non-Catholics do not. This is but an instance out of many of diversity of opinion on matters of the first moment. If the present public school system is destined to be permanent, and if there are children, we are thinking of non-Catholic children, who must go either to the public schools or to none, sooner or later the necessity of religious training for all outside the classroom will force itself upon the attention of society, and self-interest, if not conscience, will be roused into action. The religious denominations will be appealed to for the salvation of society. What they will be able to accomplish will depend on the amount of genuine Christianity left in them and on the amount of authority they are able to wield. But unfortunately, they are dropping one ancient Christian dogma after another, and notoriously, their authority is but ill acknowledged by the mass of their members, and no less feebly and effectually exercised. We have no disposition to belittle the good done or likely to be done by non-Catholic religions. But imagine anyone who is able to make an impartial survey of the situation regarding any of the sects, or all of them combined, as the future good leaven of society. The sight of much evil must therefore be endured till such time as the ancient church, still retaining its ancient vigor, is enabled on a large scale to extend its salutary influence to the great masses of our people. The saving of society, even in such a country as ours, is not beyond the power of a church that has made conquest of whole nations under circumstances no less discouraging from a human point of view. True, the real enemies with which the church will be confronted, modern indifferentism, worldliness, and vice entrenched in custom and all but sanctioned by convention, are of the most formidable kind. But even these powerful solvents cannot wholly destroy the germ of religion in the human heart. And with God working with the church, all things are possible. It may seem at times as if it were as much as we could do to preserve our own Catholic children from contamination, but even for the sake of our own children, who must mingle with the rest of the world, all the spiritual and material resources at our command should be employed to spread the true faith, even among classes that are generally regarded as hopeless. 
Yes, it is God and his church that must transform society. Nevertheless, all human endeavor should be employed to create conditions the most favorable to the action of divine grace in the souls of men. The natural virtues must be fostered. Self-denial must be inculcated everywhere, in the schoolroom as well as at the fireside. If higher motives for practicing this virtue do not commend themselves, let the utility of the virtue in building up strong and robust characters make it attractive. A people schooled in self-denial is always the best disposed for the reception of the gospel of the crucified Savior. Public morality must be promoted by the concerted action of the temporal and spiritual authorities. The press and the stage must be reformed. Upright men must interest themselves practically in the government of their municipalities and use every endeavor to prevent public authority from becoming an ally of Satan. If all the better members of society would busy themselves in promoting these objects, our modern world would be saved from an utter state of corruption, which would make it quite inaccessible, save by the greatest of miracles, to the influence sought to be exercised upon it, even by the purest Christianity. End of section 31